So our reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verse 32 to 47, and that's on page 289 in the Church Bibles. And David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with a sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog, that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray as we begin. Lord, we offer to you this time, ask that you would clear our minds that we might hear afresh from your word. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the things going on in the unseen, the things in the mind of Christ that we might otherwise miss? We pray, Father, that you would be with us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's lovely to be with you all. There are so many faces as I look around this room. Um, I'm going to have to try not to cry. Um, (laughs) It's so lovely to see you. There's so many memories in this place. I had a a wonderful four years here, a privileged four years, and that was largely due to the grace and the kindness of you. 
and of this church upon this random, fast-talking American that came (laughs) to be your curate. Um, uh, As you know, it's been a very busy time in in D.C., which is where I live. I live in Washington, D.C. I have actually been here this whole week. And so as many of you will ask me about what it's like in Washington right now, I will take a great phrase from my training incumbent, Charles, which he taught me, which is, I couldn't begin to comment. (laughs) I couldn't begin to comment on the state of our country. Um, But please do continue to pray. Pray for America. Pray for us. Pray for our future. We are talking about leadership. Uh, We are talking about leadership and beginning a series looking at David as a key leader in Scripture. We will be familiar with this story. We hear the David and Goliath story read and we say, yeah, 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 shepherd boy, picked up stones, hit the big guy, he fell over, end of story. (laughs) And there is a reason that this is a classic tale, one that we hear about when we're in Sunday school, one that we know as we grow up, maybe one of the first stories we've ever heard in scripture. And that's because it is a story that contradicts much of our own experience, It's a story that says right and purity and faith can overcome huge obstacles. That might does not make right all the time. And how many of us, when we've read the story of David and Goliath, have related to the large obstacles part of the story. How many of us this morning might be thinking of what are the Goliaths in our life that we're facing. And maybe we feel we only have a a few stones in our pocket. And that's normally how this story is told, normally how it's preached, but there's so much more to this story. And particularly, there's so much more in the life of David in this story, and much that we can hear about leadership. Now, I'm aware that whenever we talk about leadership in the church, at least half of the room sort of goes to sleep, (laughs) because they think, I'm not a leader. Aaron, I'm not a leader. That's that person over there. That's Charles. That's my boss at work. That's political leaders. But we are all leaders. There are all spaces that God has put us in, and they're individual. They're different for each one of us, in which he wants us to lead like Christ in those places. It could be as simple as a club that you're involved in in your retirement. It could be leadership as a parent over your children. It could be leadership in a company in your profession or in your school. But we all have those spheres of leadership. And many times we don't feel quite up to the task in front of us. And David certainly felt that. There is a transition of power which is happening in this passage, which is important for us to know. Saul was king, right? So Saul was the first king of Israel, and he had a lot of expectation. There was a lot of expectation that he would change the course of the people of Israel. And as we see in the chapter just before this, he's actually failed. He's failed to the point where God says, or says the Lord says, I regret making Saul king over Israel. Ooh, that's not something you want the Lord to say about you. But the Lord was saying this about Saul because he had become disobedient. He had been told to go out and to fight the Amalekites and to kill the leader of the Amalekites and to get rid of all the oxen and the sheep. And instead, he had had a slightly selfish moment, and he decided not to kill uh, the leader of the Amalekites to sort of make him prisoner and then to save all of the best sheep and the best oxen and to take them back with him. To have himself. So he had disobeyed the Lord. So the Lord said, okay, this is not going to work. I'm not going to be able to have you as my king. And so in the chapter before, we see him looking for a new leader. And we see David being anointed as that leader. But an unexpected leader, certainly. 
He was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest in a family of many taller, stronger men that probably should have been chosen over him. And yet God chose him. And we see several things in here that teach us about God's leadership and how it often looks different than what we think of as a leader. So the first thing we see is that a godly leader sees with God's heart, not with their own eyes. They see with God's heart, not with their own eyes. David had divinely guided insight because the spirit of God was working in him. He saw things that others did not see. We heard that in the story. David is coming from the fields. He's coming to just run an errand for his dad. His brothers are on the front lines of this battle with the Philistines, and they're running out of things. He's supposed to take cheese to one of the leaders. I love that as a fan of good cheese, which England has. I ate a lot of good cheese here over those years. I'm a fan, and I think I appreciate that he's taking cheese to the leaders. So this was one of his errands. He was just an errand boy in this moment. But he gets to the field, and he sees this giant Philistine, And he says to himself, well, why is no one fighting this guy? (laughs) He saw something in that moment that the other, the others did not see. The whole armies of the Israelites did not see. He saw with God's heart, God's eyes. He saw that in God, nothing is impossible, that he would have victory over this Philistine. He adopted God's perception of reality. He said, and I love that line, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of a living God? John read that so, so beautifully, but so gently, you know, but I assume he was yelling this at the top of his lungs. Who should defy the armies of a living God? And that living is really important because the Philistines had their own deities. They had statues that they would have prayed to. He's pointing out the fact that you, you Philistine worship a dead thing a thing that isn't even alive, but we worship the armies of the living God. We are the armies of the living God. He sort of looks at this situation and says it's a no-brainer. Why would we think that we couldn't overcome this army when we are the army of the living God? Just before this, they've talked about how God looks at the heart. That famous verse, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We don't always recognize where that comes from in scripture, but it's from the chapter just before this, and it's about David. So Samuel has realized that God is not going to have Saul as king anymore. So he goes and he he goes on an errand, so to speak, to try and find a new king. And he has Jesse come, and Jesse brings all of his sons, and he lines them all up, and he passes them in front of Samuel who is the prophet. And Samuel sees the first son. He sees Eliab. And he's like, ooh, looks like a good guy. Tall, strong, bit smart. I think we could use him. Probably what we do when we see someone in leadership and we think, oh, that's, that's a leader. We look at the outward appearance and we compare ourselves. And I love that phrase, comparison is a thief of joy. Comparison is a thief of joy. And I think we do this so often. God wants to use us for something and we say, oh, Lord, not me. Look at this person. This person's the one you want. We look at the outward appearance. So Eliab passes before Samuel and Samuel says, Eliab, surely, Lord, your anointing is with him, with this guy. And the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I've I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This reminds us of Jesus. 
right? Jesus saying in John, I'm going to do whatever the father is doing. I don't do what I want to do. I listen for what the father is doing and I follow it. I follow that voice. How do we see with our heart and not our eyes? This is a difficult thing to do. We, we look around us. We make comparisons of ourselves. We look at a Goliath in our life and we think it's too much, Lord. It's too much. How do we see with the mind and the eyes of Christ? Well, I think we do that primarily through prayer. We do that through taking time to hear the voice of God, to ask him, Lord, give me your eyes for this situation. Charles and I have been working on finding a date for me to come for about a year and a half, a good Sunday when I was passing through town and could come and talk about IJM. When in our work with IJM, working against slavery in the world, it looks like a Goliath. It's huge. And maybe you're one of those people who, when you see that commercial of that poor person or that, uh, that situation, that earthquake or whatever it's happened, that it's, you turn away. And we all have compassion fatigue at some point. There is so much suffering in the world. I think it can feel like a Goliath to us. And we can feel like, David, what do I have? What difference can I make to the suffering in the world? Because of that, we really believe in prayer as an organization. It may sound funny, but we stop every day at 11, all of our staff around the world, and we pray. We pray for the situations going on at that moment, for a rescue happening in Kampala. We pray for a case going on in Guatemala. Because we know that this is not our battle, this is the Lord's battle. He is the God of justice. We just have those little stones, but we do what we can with those stones. But prayer allows us to see through the eyes of God. Next slide, please. There are 45 million people enslaved in the world today. That's actually, yeah, there we go. So this is actually an old slide, the 36 million. The new statistic is 45. 45 million. If that overwhelms you, that's normal. You're just a normal human being. That is, that is crazy. 45 million people enslaved in the world today. That's more than all of the transatlantic slave trade put together. 15 million of those are in India alone. So we have five offices in India working against bonded labor. We're working, the reason we pray daily is because it's so easy in, a, in the world of activism and, and justice and de- international development to do what I, what I like to call prayerless striving. <laughs> and maybe we do that in, in a lot of areas of our life, that prayerless striving. We just think if we try harder, we can make a change. But prayer is where the power of God intersects with our human lives. Psalm 10 says this. O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed, so that those from earth may strike terror no more. This is the heart of God. This isn't something that we've invented. So we pray to him. We call upon him. We try to have his eyes for the situation, which are eyes that are not overwhelmed by the suffering in the world but a heart that wants to engage in it instead. So we pray. So we have an annual gathering, a prayer gathering, where we have one here in the UK. That happens in November. So if you ever want to go, you're all welcome. And we pray. And in the US, we have ours in March, and it's two days. And we pray for the different offices around the world. And we acknowledge the ways God's answered prayers from the year before. And then we pray for the new things in faith, knowing they will be answered in the following year when we look back at them. And I've seen amazing answers to prayer. It's so encouraging uh, to, have the, to have that gathering. And a few years ago, there's about 2,000, 3,000 people that come and pray. 
And a few years ago, it was the last session, the last session of the conference. And the team that plans the conference was backstage. And they were thinking, what do we pray for? What should we pray for today? And they said, one of them spoke up and said, I think we should pray for the ending of slavery in India. (laughs) And the rest of the team said, that's a terrible idea. No, 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 no. It's too big. It's too big. We're putting too much on God. Have you ever had that thought? I can't pray that, God. That's just too much. That's too much to ask you, too much to believe in. But they had the sense, no, we should pray for this. It's an audacious prayer, but we should pray. We should pray for this. So they they got out onto the stage in the last session. These two, 3,000 people all prayed for the end of slavery in India. At that point in time, we were still battling with the government to acknowledge that there were 15 million slaves in India. But they prayed it anyway. They prayed it in faith. So this is an example of a brick kiln in India. And two weeks later, there's a story of a man named Bula. And Bula was enslaved in a brick kiln. And at one point, he risked his life. Miraculously, he was able to get out to escape in the night. And he got to a telephone. And he called his brother. And his brother hadn't seen him for years, didn't know where he'd gone, because he'd been trafficked over a 1,000 miles from his home and kept enslaved in this brick kiln. And so he went and he called his brother and his, he told his brother what was happening. And then his brother went to the local authorities. Now this is where the miracles continue. The local authorities, instead of either tipping off the brick kiln owner, which would probably mean the end of Bula's life, that he had attempted to escape, or show, you know, telling, him to, telling the brick kiln owner that the police were coming for a raid, but he wouldn't be anywhere to be found and the slaves would have been moved. This is the normal way that the system, the broken system was working. But instead a miracle happened. And that police officer wanted to do something good, wanted to engage in a just act. And so he got in touch with IJM, with our office there. And then together, those local authorities and our IJM office planned a rescue. They thought there were probably about 200 slaves in that brick kiln. They knew they would be of all ages, children, elderly, even those who couldn't work anymore would have been kept there. Let's go back, actually, if you don't mind. Thank you. <laughs> um, so they, they thought that about 200 were kept there. So they go and they, they, you can imagine they have to organize trucks to carry that many people out. They have water and health care. Uh, they have doctors there because these people will have been injured and not been given any uh, health care. They will have worked for about 18 hours a day without much food or rest, many times locked in windowless rooms um, through the night only to be woken up to work again. So they had prepared all of that, and as they got there and they started working, they started working their way through the crowd and finding more and more people, and the word spread that that they were coming to rescue them. More and more people came out of the corners. They were dressed in colorful clothes, as you can see here in this next picture. And as the people began to pour out, they realized there were many more. It was a sea of people stretching nearly 30 yards from the team. And in the end, there were 512 people, 512 people. It was our biggest rescue ever. We'd never seen numbers like that. It included 23 children, the youngest of which was eight years old, and their dependents. And our director of aftercare, in front of this throng of people, yelled in Hindi, who wants to come out? And immediately, hundreds of hands shot up. We can go to the next photo. This was our biggest rescue ever. And all that is to say that there is actually much hope to have about the fight against slavery. The following year, we would have our second largest rescue ever of more than 300 people. India has some of the most robust anti-slavery laws in the country. 
It is against the law of slavery in all the countries where we work. It's just not being enforced for the poorest of the poor. They're not being protected. The next slide, please. But there is much to hope for. Our staff in Asia, in Southeast Asia, will now say, just a few years on, they think we can see the end of slavery in our generation. That's a miracle. They think that in our generation, we can see these 15 million people be freed. If people like us will pray, will get involved. A godly leader sees with the heart of God and not the eyes of the world. Looks at the Goliath and sees with faith. Next slide. Secondly, a godly leader is motivated by God's glory alone. David was motivated by his zeal for God, not his own protection. He wanted God to be glorified. He said in verse 46 that we read, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. His desire was that God be glorified, that his reputation be lifted up. That's why it says in those chapters before, he was a man after God's own heart. The rest of 1 Samuel will be devoted to this tension between there being two anointed kings in the courts, Saul and David. But we will see over and over again that David is, even in his mishaps is, and his sins, is a man after God's own heart. He continues to go back to wanting to glorify God, even when he makes mistakes. David, as this whole passage is beginning to create, he's an example of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. In fact, that word Messiah, we think of it at Christmas, we think of it as Jesus's title, and it was, but it came originally from this idea of the kings over Israel. They were called Messiahs. They were meant to be perfect kings, worshiping God, wanting to glorify him above themselves. But as we see in the history of Israel, they fall over and over again. The Messiah, as we would see in Jesus, trusted in God and was protected by him, led Israel victoriously against its enemies and us on the cross against sin. We hear over and over again that Jesus is the perfect David, the perfect king who would come. And Jesus, we know above all else, wanted to glorify his God, wanted to glorify his father. I think about the Garden of Gethsemane when he sat there and said, not my will, Lord, but yours. Not my will, God, not my will, Father, but yours. Even in the face of suffering. And that perhaps is one of the hardest places as a leader to choose God's glory and not our own is in times of suffering, in times when we're facing obstacles. How will we do that this week? How will we set up our lives this year to be oriented towards God's glory and not our own. Someone once said to me that the thing about leadership is you get the hits and you get the glory. (laughs) And sometimes if you're in a season of leadership where it's all going really well, the hardest thing to do is to make sure that God is getting the glory. And then sometimes when we see a moment of suffering, we don't move towards it because we're worried how we're going to look. We're worried we're going to fail. It's our pride at stake. But sometimes God calls us to that moment of suffering or that moment of risk because he's going to be glorified by it. Not because we're perfect and ready for it, but because he's going to be glorified by the way we live through it in our weakness. We certainly see that with David. As he walked forward in his weakness, God got the glory. Not because he was the perfect leader, but because he was faithful. As I was praying about this uh, this talk and praying for you all and praying about what exactly God wanted to say to you, I felt like God said there, there's a couple people here this morning who, 
who are facing some suffering, a choice of whether to walk into the battle with an obstacle that seems too big, and you're worried about how it will make you look if you do. And I just sense God's wanting to encourage you to walk in. It's okay that even in your weakness, he will be glorified. Even if you don't feel ready or perfect, he can get that glory. And lastly, a godly leader relies on the maths. I should say maths, not math. (laughs) Relies on the maths of the kingdom. They know that faith is the determining factor in life's battles, not one's strength. This is hard for us, isn't it? Because we're actually told most of our lives to prepare. Be as prepared as possible for all obstacles. Remove all risk from your life. Make sure that you have all of the finances you need for the future. Make sure you have a life plan. Make sure you know exactly where all of your relationships are going. But this isn't the maths of the kingdom. In fact, Jesus says often the opposite. Walk in faith. Walk not by sight, but by faith into the unknown. It's not always about preparation. It's not always about smarts. It's not always about earthly power or money or station. Faith is what wins the battle in the end. David was aware of the means by which the victory would be accomplished. He knew it was his faith. He knew he had nothing else to offer but a slingshot and some stones. And he went in anyway. He understood that faith in the Lord was a determining factor. David's trust in God's ability to save him at all odds, his childlike faith, I almost think when I look at this passage, was the key to that victory. In our minds, one plus one equals two. I often think the mass of the kingdom is one God plus us one equals infinite miracles. (laughs) equals victory in so many places where we otherwise wouldn't achieve it when we rely on him. God likes to use the unlikely, the unexpected, to confound and defeat the most powerful enemies of his purposes. And we'll see that theme throughout Israelite history. Zechariah would tell us that God's purposes are not achieved by might or by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul will later tell us that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And you know who he's talking about in that passage? The church. (laughs) He's looking out at the church saying, well, it wouldn't be how exactly I design it. (laughs) I might not have chosen all of you, but God has. There is no plan B. We are the foolish things of the world that are made to confound the wise through the grace of Christ, not by anything we've done. I'll finish with this story, taking you back to a day in 1955 in the States, in the state of Alabama. It was a 42-year-old African-American seamstress. She was riding a bus on her way to work. Her name was Rosa Parks. She was riding her, the bus on the way to work, and she decided that day she just needed to sit down. But there was no space in the black part of the bus, and so she sat in the white, segregated part of the bus. Many of you know her story. It was a simple act of an unassuming but disenfranchised woman, and it became the spark that ignited a movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King to boycott the bus system. That little act of justice, of courage, of faith in that moment when she was the underdog led to the desegregation of the entire bus system just one year later. 
If you've ever heard Miss Rosa Parks uh, speak, she's an amazing woman. She perceived things that others did not see in that moment. She was confident in the righteousness of her cause. She didn't look at what was in her hands, but she looked at, with faith, at what she did have. She used what was within her power. I can't imagine how big that Goliath must have seemed to her in that moment. The government laws, the state of the culture was all going against this act of bravery, and yet she did it. And she says this a few years later. She says, knowing what must be done does away with fear. It was time for someone to stand up, or in my case, sit down. (laughs) A godly leader sees with God's heart, not their eyes, is motivated by God's glory, not their own glory, and relies on the maths of the kingdom, that God is strong where we are weak. So we continue to pray, and that's what I would ask you to do Today, as you think about these images, as you think about slavery in the world today, to remember the power of prayer, that we're not praying into a battle that is ours, but as the scripture says, this battle is the Lord's, but he can use us in it, even the smallest things in the world. The faith of Jesus' followers and God's desire to accomplish miraculous things through his people will change the world. Let me pray for us as we finish. God, we think of the story of David and Goliath, and it's easy to feel afraid. It's easy to feel that we are not enough, that we don't have the resources or skills or training we need. Lord, we acknowledge and remember today that you are with us. We remember that if it's your fight that we're going into, that we go with your power and your presence with us, that we have nothing to fear. We thank you, Father, for the opportunities we have even in our lives today to face obstacles. We ask you would strengthen our faith in those moments. Lord, would you remind us of your tangible presence with us, even on those fields we are not alone. And God, would you show us, each one of us, what's in our pocket? Like Rosa Parks, what do we have around us that we can do? It may be small, but what is it that we can do to join in your fight for justice around the world today. In Jesus' name, amen.